0: I'm going to be reading from uh, Philippians chapter 1, starting with verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. And it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. And the latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what's it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, that Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. And yes, I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that what's happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that Now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And if I'm to go on living in this body, it'll be in fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far, But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. But whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man in the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but you, you'll be saved, and that is by God." For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him. And since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Morning, y'all. Happy Sunday. We are uh, in the beginning, at the very beginning of this series uh, where we're going through the New Testament book of Philippians, and the cool thing about this series is that we're just going to walk through the text of the entirety of the book, and just as topics arise, we'll uh, address them as they pop up, but um, we have entitled the series, Choose Joy, uh, because I think the thing that we see repeatedly throughout the book of Philippians is this repeated notion of having joy in your life and rejoicing in the midst of whatever it is you're dealing with. And certainly it, it appears that uh, Paul has figured out how to maintain this joy in his life, even in the midst of hard times. And last week you may remember that we made a distinction between happiness and joy in the fact that you know there are things that make us happy that are more temporal things, but the joy is more of a deep, sustaining, permanent state of mind, Uh, that we can have no matter what it is that we're going through and so today we're going through the second half of Philippians chapter 1 and I want to remind you that even though we call it the book of Philippians that it's actually a letter uh, that was written to the people in the church at Philippi which is now part of modern day Greece And this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the people of Philippi while he was in prison in Rome, awaiting to stand trial in front of Caesar for his crime, which was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so with that, let's uh, kind of launch into this and start with verse 12. It says, now I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And as a result of my imprisonment, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So the situation is, as I describe, Paul is in jail, he's awaiting trial, and because he has not been convicted of any crime yet, tradition holds that he was probably under what they call house arrest, literally sitting in a house, uh, being held by the palace guards, and he's waiting for his verdict to come in, right? And an innocent verdict will mean that he has the ability to be set free and go about his business and do what only the Apostle Paul can do. But a guilty verdict in this case could very well mean that Paul would be put to death. Regardless of the situation, it appears that the Apostle Paul is having an effect on the palace guards as he is explaining to him why he has been imprisoned. And uh, tradition also holds that when you're under house arrest, that the, uh, the palace guards actually would be chained to you physically And if that's the case, then, you know, the Apostle Paul has this, like, captive audience where he can just sit and preach to these guys day in and day out, and it seems like he's really making a difference. It also appears that his imprisonment is inspiring others, Christians, who are in the faith but who are around that they're becoming more bold about their faith because they're watching Paul be so bold in his faith Because it says that they're more daring, all the more daring to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, we're going to see this as kind of the recurring theme in these verses that we're dealing with this morning. This idea of um, being able to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, (laughs) there's a little bit of a disconnect for us because... You know, sharing Jesus back then, a fear of sharing Jesus back then, is a little different than our fear of sharing Jesus today, right? I mean, because back then, you share your faith, you could literally lose your head. But today, it's more of a fear of, like, being accepted, or uh, a fear of being mocked for uh, what it is that we share, rather than a fear for our lives, And so when we talk about this in the church, um, in the Christian world, you know, we always, in churches, we always have these kind of funky words that describe things. And in this particular case, the word that's used to describe this is called evangelism. Some people also refer to this as witnessing. Whatever you want to call it, it simply means sharing our faith in Jesus with other people. And as simple as that may sound it's something that strikes fear into the heart of most people because you get kind of a few different images in your head about what evangelism is, right? So some people have this image in their head of like they have to stand on the street corner and shout out, repent or die to everybody that's kind of walking by and the kingdom of God is at hand kind of a thing and people walk by and look at you like you're a kook. Or that evangelism is when you talk to somebody about your faith, but you're scared to death that you don't know enough to be able to talk intelligently about your faith. You can't make an argument for creation versus evolution. You can't refute the Big Bang Theory. You can't quote Ephesians 2, 8. And so you freeze up. And you are afraid that somebody's going to know that you don't know what you're talking about, at which point somebody's going to look at you and call you a kook. (laughs) Or perhaps you see evangelism as boldly proclaiming your faith in Jesus to everybody. Without exception, the members of your family, your work associates, all of your neighbors, even the poor cashier at the Jewel. And which, when you finally get done, you know for sure that everybody is going to look at you like you're a kook. Are, are, are you seeing a pattern here? Right? So Paul goes on and he says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill, and the latter do so out of love. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here in the defense of the gospel. But the former, they preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what's it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether false motives are true, Christ is preached, and because of that, I rejoice. Now, I have to say, right or wrong, I have a whole different perspective about this than Paul does, and I'm just owning that because it really bugs me when people preach the gospel of Jesus Christ with false motives. It bugs me when I see a pastor who is up preaching for his own ego, or trying to be known, or when a Christian uh, wants to take on an argument with somebody because they just want to argue about what they believe versus what somebody else believes, or when a Christian um, comes across demeaning or judgmental because somebody believes something different than they believe. It feels like they care more about being right, they care more about their own ego than about the person that they're talking to, which goes against the idea of what it means to share our faith. And I think that's what makes evangelism like a dirty word, right? Now, If I'm honest about it, I will say to you and admit that I was at one time part of the problem. And yes, I even helped to give evangelism a bad name. When I was a young, pumped up Bible college student, I signed up to be uh, in what was called Evangelism Explosion. Now, as I was, doing, was, as I was going through my notes this morning, I swear to goodness, I think this is true. Gordon is the one who brought Evangelism Explosion to my church. I was just a very young buck. He was a very old pastor. And I'm pretty sure he's the one who brought the whole Evangelism Explosion thing to our church. Um, now, the, the teaching part of that was great because I think it really gave me the tools to help me to be able to share my faith in a very succinct way. But in order to graduate from that training program, You actually had to go out door-to-door calling, and it's as bad as it sounds. You literally knock on the door of people that you didn't know, and you try to win them to Jesus in 30 seconds or less. (laughs) And you, of course, wanted to be careful not to go into your own neighborhood to do this, because in case you accidentally knocked on the door of somebody you knew, you didn't want them to think you were a kook. So you find a place where nobody knows you, and you go in and you work that neighborhood. So I, st- I still can't believe that I did this, but I actually did, and I you know, knocked on the door thing, and some poor innocent victim, who had no idea that they were about to be verbally assaulted, um, opens the door, and as soon as the door cracks open, I would launch right into it, and I would say, hi. If you were to die tonight, do you think that you would go to heaven? That's a great opening line, isn't it? Pretty smooth, huh? All you single guys out there, you're looking for that pickup line? You can use that one. That's gold right there. So, now if I was really lucky, this person would be so shocked and appalled that I would have the audacity to ask that question, that they would be like a deer in the headlights, to the point that the door would be open long enough that I could launch into the rest of my spiel and fire a couple good Bible verses at them and hit them right between the eyes. Bible verses that absolutely meant nothing to them. It was absolutely ridiculous. As you can imagine, my statistics were not very impressive. Out of the ten door-to-door calls that I made, five doors were shut in my face. I had three I-don't-want-any's, but in my defense, I think they mistook me for like a vacuum cleaner salesman or something. I had one very polite no thank you, and then one looked me right in the eye and said, get away from me, you kook. No wonder evangelism has become such a dirty word and guys like me are to blame. Well, the Apostle Paul, I just see this guy as like this bold evangelist, right, And that I can't relate to. He was never afraid, it appeared, to get into somebody's face and to preach the gospel, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the situation was. I just have this picture of Paul that he would just never shut up about Jesus, But when you look at what he's saying in this text, and you also look at some of his other letters that he wrote during this time, he actually has a great sensitivity to the fact that the gospel of Jesus can't be crammed down somebody's throat. That you have to earn the right to be able to do it, and if you're doing it out of pure motives, then you're doing it out of love. Because you actually give a rip about what happens to that person. You're not sharing it for your own ego. You're not sharing it to be right. You're sharing it because you care about what happens to that person. And you can't fake that. Evangelism is something that should come naturally. And by that, I don't mean that us doing evangelism comes naturally because I don't know of anybody where it comes naturally to anybody. But when we do it, it should be naturally born out of an opportunity that presents itself that allows us to talk to somebody who actually wants to hear about it. Not the gospel ambush method where we jump out from behind a bush and smack them over the head with the Bible. I have to say that I am not somebody who is constantly out there preaching the gospel. As many of you know, I'm a volunteer here, and I'm in the business world Monday through Friday, and I'm not out there, like, preaching during my negotiations. I'm just not that guy. Evangelism, I believe, at its best, comes out of a relationship that we have with somebody that has evolved to the point that we have earned the right to talk to them about their relationship with God. There's, of course, exceptions about that when there's opportunities that arise with complete strangers. But for the most part, this is evangelism at its best. It's through, it's born out of a relationship, not out of something forced. Well, Paul now switches it up a bit, and he begins to describe the tension that he's facing right now. And what I want to do is to kind of restate, in my own words, the verses uh, that he has, that he talks about this. So it's my own paraphrase. This is the gospel according to Darren. And I just want to paraphrase what he says. And starting in verse 19, and he says this, I will continue to be joyful. And because of your prayers, and of course the Holy Spirit, I think that everything's going to turn out okay for me. I really hope that when the moment comes and I'm faced with death, I will in no way back down or be ashamed of the fact that I live for Jesus. But instead, that I will have sufficient courage so that Jesus will be honored in the way that I respond. And so if I live, then I'm living for Jesus. And I hope my ministry and work will benefit others. But if I die, then I'll be with Jesus. And I think that will be pretty incredible. So, what should I choose? Like he has any choice in this or not. His life is in the hands of Caesar at this point. He says, I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I think it'll be great when I die to go to heaven and be with Jesus, which is better than anything I could ever imagine. But I haven't finished my work here, so I don't think God is done with me yet. So I'm thinking... God's going to keep me around for a while so that I can continue to help all of you grow in your faith and you'll become bold about your faith as I have been. I think these are the words of a man who's in an incredibly stressful situation and he's just trying to work it out in his head. And I'm sure that I'm bordering on heresy here when I say that Paul is probably more than just a little bit scared. And rightly so. He's living in an era where Christians are being persecuted and killed and beheaded for preaching about Jesus in the public spaces. And the likelihood of him being put to death in this verdict is pretty high. And when we read that even Jesus himself was scared, was stressed in those moments leading up to his death where he was sweating blood in the garden. I don't think it's a stretch to believe that Paul wasn't some superhuman who had some superhuman strength and wasn't just a little stressed out about the possibility of facing death here. There was this tension in him. And you could almost see him like trying to pump himself up? Because in just a minute, he's going to be standing there in front of the emperor of Rome. And he's going to be faced with a question. And he's going to be asked point blank, do you believe? He says, I hope I'm not ashamed in that moment. I hope I don't shrink back. But how could you not be just scared, knowing that what you say in that moment could cause you to be killed? Says, so, so I have this tension about. <laughs> I love the idea of going to heaven, but I'd really like to stick around this world a little longer, which is a pretty normal human emotion, right? I don't care how strong your faith is, and I've been there in those last moments with a lot of people who have very strong faith, and you can't help, no matter how strong your faith is, you can't help but be afraid of death. It's not normal. And it's okay. And so when you're there comforting people who are in their last moments and they're people of faith, it has to be help them to be okay with being afraid. And being nervous. And having anxiety about it. But I think that what Paul is, the point that Paul is trying to make here, is that no matter what happens to him, whether in living or dying, more than anything else, he wants his life to be about Jesus. He wants to know that no matter what it is that he faces, no matter what it is he goes through, that he won't have a weak moment. That he'll not be ashamed. That he'll be able to stand firm and he'll be able to stand up and say, yes, I believe. Well, he goes on and he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I know you will stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Our fear of evangelism is really a fear of what people will think about us if we go public about our faith. Right? What will people in the office think? What will my neighbors think? Will I be accepted? Will people talk behind my back? Will people make fun of me? And it's okay if you're nervous or you're afraid or you're uncomfortable in those moments when it comes time to stand up for your faith. It's okay, that's not what matters. What matters is that when the moment hits that we don't shrink back that we're not ashamed of who we are in Jesus and that in that moment that we can stand up and say yeah I believe in spite of our fears A lot of times I've seen Christians turn this thing around and they get defensive and all of a sudden people get, you know, start speaking in a very judgmental or critical way. Or they take the position of kind of a Christian arrogance where somehow we're better because we believe in Jesus and you don't. And if we're taking that position, then just stay silent. (laughs) Because that's not what sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. When we conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, as Paul described, then we do it with love and honesty and respect and transparency. Instead, when we talk to somebody about our faith, I think it's so important to just be honest about it and not try to act like we're perfect or all of a sudden we got it all together. But to talk about the struggles in our own life. when I talk all the time when I'm in these kind of conversations. I talk about my doubts. I acknowledge that there's no scientific proof behind all of this. That's why they call it faith. But it doesn't make my faith any less real. My faith is as real to me as oxygen. My whole life revolves around this thing. And I want to share that. I think the best way to do evangelism is as Jesus describes it, is that we are to be a witness, right? To testify, if you will, to what Jesus has done in your life. To give your personal testimony. This is the essence of sharing your faith. I don't have to have all the answers to the questions that nobody knows. I don't have to be able to quote scripture or to be able to refute the the theory of the Big Bang or, or of evolution. Because simply put, evangelism is just telling the story of Jesus in your life. How he's made a difference. Let me get real practical for a minute. This may sound odd, but if you haven't written out your personal testimony, I think there's a real value in that. Like just kind of going through the story of Jesus in your life. And I think what happens is that when the opportunity hits, that you're not taken off guard, that you'll know what you want to say. And you'll have like this competence in the moment to be able to tell your story. And so if I were to sum it up for you, I would say that there are about four things that you may want to include in your personal testimony that could maximize your message. And, you know, there's no right or wrong to this, but here's four ideas for you. The first one is when you're writing your testimony out to just say what my life was like before I met Jesus. Talk about how messed up you were, how lost you were before you entered into your relationship with God. Talk about the void that you felt, how you didn't have like a sense of purpose in your life. Secondly, talk about when did I realize that I needed him? What was the point in time that became the defining moment when I made the decision to surrender my life to Jesus? When did my life become so unmanageable I knew I needed change? Or when did it finally occur to me that Jesus really was the answer to the question of life? Third, how did I make my decision? Did someone help me to figure it out? Was I sitting in church? Was I in meeting? Was I with a friend? And then the last thing, and I think this is the most important and powerful one, what is the difference that Jesus has made in my life now? How have I changed? How has my life changed direction? Not that I'm somehow now perfect, but how have my passions change, my desires, the choices that I make? How has the mission of my life changed now that I've given my life to Jesus? While these are just some suggestions, there's no right or wrong aspect to it, I think that before you get into those types of moments, to be able to think that through, you want to be prepared so that you can have the ability to tell somebody the story of Jesus in your life. I think that we have to remember the most important aspect, and that is that the same grace that brought you to Jesus is the same grace that will bring somebody else to him. So let me tell you how I would define evangelism. Evangelism is making a commitment to walk with somebody in their journey to God. To walk side by side with somebody so that they can actually encounter the radical love of God through you. The Bible says that God doesn't even want one person to be lost. Not even one. And he wants all people to come to him and find him and in fact be saved and I think we should make the motto at Westridge to read nobody walks alone that as the people of Jesus we will commit to walk side by side with the people who don't know him so that there will come a day when we can walk side by side with them down the streets of heaven Evangelism doesn't have to be a dirty word. It just shows that you don't really care what other people think because you care enough about somebody that you don't want to spend eternity without them. I can't imagine that moment when Paul stood there in front of Caesar and he had to make that statement. And he had to stand there knowing that his life was in his hands as he said, I believe. But I do know that there's been times in my own life when I've been in that moment when my life wasn't even being threatened and I've shrunk back. I've been embarrassed. But no more. To be able just to stand there and just be able to not be ashamed and to be able to stand in any situation and say i believe i believe i am absolutely obsessed with that moment in the garden where Jesus is having this time where he's questioning, moving forward, being fully human. He knew that taking a step off that rock in that garden, that he was going to just get this incredible beating, that he was going to have nails driven in his hands and in his feet, and he was going to die there on this cross and he said God if there's any other way that we can save mankind just let me know what it is because I don't want to do this thing and I love that in that moment that God got his back and, and he gave him this angel and that comforted him and in that moment he stood up And when he stood up he knew what he had to do and that was to not be ashamed of you to take all of your sin, all of your shame and mine and to put it on him on that cross so that we could have forgiveness. So that all the sin in our life could be washed away and on that day when we walk out of this world and into the next that we could stand we could stand before God head held high Perfect in that moment because all of our sin was there on the cross. We celebrate that moment every Sunday in a time of communion. Because that is so important for us as Christians. That is the foundation of our faith that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so in just a moment, there's going to be a tray of bread that'll be passed. If you take a piece of bread and eat it, pass the tray down to the next person. But as you take that piece of bread, the Bible asks us to take that very seriously. And to take that in remembrance of the broken body of Jesus Christ. And in the same way, there'll be a tray of cups of juice that'll be passed. If you take a cup of juice and drink it, put the empty cup back in the tray, pass it down to the next person. But as you do take that in remembrance of the blood that was spilled there on that cross. That gives us hope. The blood that was spilled when Jesus said, I am not ashamed of you. And I will go to death on a cross for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you for just everything you've done. You made it so simple and yet we can still screw it up. I pray that you'll give us the strength and the fortitude to be able to stand firm in our faith, to be able to stand up and say, I believe, and to know what Jesus has done for us changed everything. And we thank you for that gift. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.